It's um, a real pleasure to do this again this year. Um, I really enjoy this. Um, I, I will have to tell you, though, that, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of pleasure to be among friends. Richmonders, a lot of people I know in the audience, a lot of uh, uh, faces that are familiar, uh, including some of my colleagues and including my, my predecessor in my job, Al Broadus. I got to tell you, though, it's a little uncomfortable. It's uh, sort of like wearing someone else's clothes. You know, this is still on my electronic calendar as the broadest breakfast. I hope you know. <clears throat> and uh, when I, I do these things in Al's in the audience, I feel kind of like, you know, feeling like you're in your late 20s and you run into your third grade teacher in the supermarket, you know, and you kind of all of a sudden you're on your best behavior. <laughs> so uh, if I get a little nervous, uh, forgive me here. Al's in the audience. Uh, and he was a master at this far better than I. But I'll do my best. <clears throat> what I want to talk about, obviously, is uh, the economic outlook. And obviously, it's um, uh, not a cheerful topic these days. So one approaches this with less enthusiasm than uh, I, I, do, I have in the past. Um, but um, I'm going to spend um, paying special attention to financial market conditions, because they're obviously at the core of the story of what's happened over the last two years. Obviously, a, a matter of um, tough policy challenges uh, in the months ahead, and uh, obviously key to how the economy um, uh, evolves. I have to state the usual disclaimer. Uh, the views expressed are my own, and uh, might even be more true of Richmond presidents than others. Um, uh, not likely to be exactly uh, congruent with those of my Federal Reserve colleagues, but um, we strive for consensus nonetheless. So. Um, just to begin with the obvious, uh, the proximate cause of our economic uh, troubles right now and the financial market turbulence uh, that's accompanied that, um, it's been the, the home mortgages that were made uh, in late 2005 through 2006 and then into early 2007. And, and it's best to view those as coming at the end of a decade-long boom in housing and housing finance in 95 or so. Uh, went through the end of 2005. Mortgages made near the peak of the boom have uh, turned out to be much less profitable uh, than people anticipated. They're experiencing much larger losses than expected, particularly for um, subprime, non-traditional mortgage category. Now, despite what you've heard uh, from some commentators that uh, will profess certainty about what the cause of all of this was, um, it's going to take years of research to really untangle quantitatively in a convincing way uh, the causes of a lot of different contributors uh, to what we've been through. Now, I'm not going to offer you a definitive assessment here today, but what I think we can do is identify the culprits, identify the list of candidates uh, for what contributed to all this, and outline those and uh, await a definitive assessment on the relative importance of these various candidates. Now, one which is often overlooked is productivity growth, oddly enough. Um, productivity growth, as I've said many times before at this uh, breakfast, um, increased substantially in 1995. This was the end of the long productivity slowdown, and that increase in productivity passed through to increases in the rate of growth of real household income. As consumers began to understand that, they naturally increased consumption, and you'd expect uh, that to show up in part in an increase in demand for housing. Uh, and it turns out that um, current data suggests a decline in trend productivity growth in the middle of this decade we've just been through. 
um, around the time uh, that the housing market peaked and began falling. So we have circumstantial uh, suggestion there that that might be uh, that swing in, in real income growth uh, up and then back down again may have contributed to this uh, boom and bust in housing. Now, another plausible contributing factor uh, was the wave of technological innovation in the delivery of retail credit. And this is something I've talked about in some speeches before. It's allowed lenders to make finer distinctions between borrowers, between the creditworthiness of different borrowers. And that facilitated lower interest rates for some very creditworthy borrowers uh, that were formerly lumped together in a big pool of people. And it also allowed uh, lenders to expand lending to borrowers who were formerly viewed as unworthy of credit. <clears throat> now, in any industry, if you just reflect upon it, telecommunications is a great example, any industry going through a wave of innovation, a structural shift driven by technological innovation, there's a, a good likelihood of some overextension, some overexpansion, and some retrenchment. And so to some extent, it might just be the fact that people knew this was expanding the market, but they weren't sure how far, and we went too far, and we're experiencing the, the, the uh, required retrenchment. The regulatory and supervisory regime uh, that surrounds U.S. housing finance seems to me uh, likely to have contributed to this boom in housing finance and the subsequent bust. And here there's sort of several, there's several different factors that I think deserve special mention. First, supervisory agencies, just like borrowers, lenders, um, investors, other participants in the industry, um, probably assigned a fairly low probability to uh, an adverse housing demand shift that was of the magnitude and the broad geographic extent of the shift that we've seen in the last couple of years. Um, and so took, took less precautions than, uh, in hindsight, we would have wanted to have taken. In addition to that, I think that private sector incentives uh, to foresee such a shift and to protect against it uh, were to some extent dampened by the presence of the federal financial safety net. Here I mean deposit insurance for uh, banking and thrift institutions and access uh, by uh, banking institutions to uh, credit extension from the Federal Reserve Bank. Market participants may have inferred got louder all of a sudden. Um, market participants may have inferred that a housing market shock that was large enough to affect a broad swath of the industry um, would elicit significant official support. Uh, so there may have been sort of a safety in numbers thinking about this, uh, that if everyone's doing it, they're going to have to bail us out. And that might be particularly true for institutions perceived as too big to fail. Now, past instances of government intervention to prevent large financial institutions from failing, long-term capital management, continental Illinois, for example, come to mind, may have encouraged such inferences. We have to think hard about those cases, I think, now. The federal financial safety net probably also played a role in banks' involvement in the securitization process. Um, that process was at the heart of housing finance, particularly among these institutions perceived as too big to fail. They used off-balance sheet arrangements, and they provided backup lines of credit uh, to uh, securitization structures and arrangements. And those uh, provision of those services may have provided a, a huge contingent exposure. In fact, it turns out it did provide a huge contingent exposure for the banking system. And by design, they were, they were designed to be realized exactly when 
the value of the federal financial safety net would be most uh, prominent. Um, and so, you know, in the states of the world where things look really bad for a large section of the financial safety sector, that's when you would expect it would be most likely for the financial safety net to be invoked and for credit to be provided to these large institutions. And so that may be why they had a comparative advantage in extending these backstop contingent support arrangements. In addition to those incentive problems in the banking system, the inferred prospect of support for government-sponsored enterprises like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac lowered their borrowing costs and probably contributed to their appetite for risk, including their appetite for uh, subprime and non-traditional mortgages. And legislative in initiatives that um, encourage such enterprises to extend credit to low-income borrowers also would have stimulated the demand for those securities um, by them. Another key causal suspect in the housing boom and bust is the relatively low path of interest rates after the recession earlier this decade, especially in 2003 and 2004. Some economists have argued with the benefit of hindsight, and that's very important, this is with the benefit of hindsight, that tighter monetary policy during that period could have led to better outcomes by preventing core inflation uh, from rising over that period and the period after that as it did, and as a side effect, limiting the housing boom by raising real mortgage rates and thus limiting the subsequent bust. And I have to be careful here. I wasn't on the committee in 2003. My predecessor was. Um, so I, I, while I see this as plausible, uh, much further research uh, needs to be done to substantiate this hypothesis. All of that, though, is really uh, prologue to the turmoil that began in uh, the summer of 2007 and has plagued us since then. Uh, and a time period that begins with the dawning of the realization, very widely, of the scale of the home mortgage losses that were headed the financial system's way. The turmoil intensified uh, this past September, and volatility has been fairly elevated since then, although some indicators of financial strains have eased a bit in the last month or two. The way I like to tell this story is that financial market participants have faced three categories of uncertainty time period that were very prominent and pressing for them. The first just concerns the aggregate amount of uh, mortgage losses. Um, for mortgages made in 2006, early 2007, uh, the vintages in which these losses are concentrated, the sig there's significant uncertainty re remaining regarding total losses. And there, you know, you just have to consider the fact that on a, any given vintage of mortgages, it takes four or five years to really converge at the cumulative losses that that pool of mortgages is going to experience. Second, financial market participants have faced uncertainty about where the losses are going to turn up. Uh, mortgage risks were split up and widely spread, uh, both within the United States and abroad, um, through securitization and through the use of the insurance properties of these credit derivative products. As a result, financial market participants are understandably apprehensive about whether any particular counterparty of theirs uh, has mortgage-related losses that are large enough to erode their capital buffer and threaten their viability. Third, market participants have at times faced uncertainty about prospective public sector intervention. Policymakers have responded differently to potential failures at several 
high-profile participants in the financial markets, and uh, that may have made it difficult, I think, for financial market participants uh, to forecast whether official support would be forthcoming for any particular counterparty of theirs. Shifts in expectations about uh, the broad stance of official intervention may have added volatility to financial asset prices uh, that were already roiled by an increasingly uncertain economic environment over this period, and uncertainty about the form of government support, asset purchases, for example, versus dilutive capital purchases by the government, may have hindered the provision of fresh capital uh, to firms that needed it. My opinion, most of what we've observed in financial markets since uh, the middle of 2007 is fairly intelligible in light of these sources of uncertainty facing market participants. And I'll say it's fairly intelligible without appealing to notions of market dysfunction or market failure. Apprehension about potential losses caused lenders to demand higher risk premium in interbank credit markets for institutions that they believed had at least some mortgage-related exposures. Market participants became especially concerned about heightened risk associated with lending at longer maturities. They wanted the flexibility to be able to reassess uh, the creditworthiness of the counterparty over time. So risk premium, term premium, became especially elevated. Some borrowers were unwilling to pay higher term premium, however, and they shortened the tenor of their lending. Others were willing to pay the unusually high premium in order to protect themselves uh, and lock in funding. Um, out of a fear that their own perceived creditworthiness would erode dramatically in the period ahead. More broadly, uh, the proliferation of intermediation channels that financial innovation has brought, the wide variety of contractual forms and market mechanisms for borrowing and lending in uh, financial markets now, has meant that for many borrowers, evaluating one particular borrowing option, the next available option might not be that bad. So, for example, many commercial paper issuers have backup lines of credit with banks. And so if the commercial paper market no longer offers attractive rates, uh, they convert to uh, a loan from a bank at a pre-existing rate. Uh, naturally, in the marketplace, this gives rise to observations that lending is, is frozen or clogged or lending is dried up. Uh, but really, it's just a, a market reaction. And... Uh, a reduction in the volume in that particular credit channel to a very low number, and a shift of intermediation to other channels. A portfolio reallocation in response to change in risk assessment. The striking feature of central bank lending and other government financial support during this whole episode of turmoil recently, the extent to which it's extended well beyond the boundaries that were previously thought constrain and limit such support, both in the range of institutions we've lent to and in the contractual terms on which credit has been provided. Now, that intervention was driven by a very well-meaning, well-intended desire to prevent damaging disruptions to financial markets and thus reduce the overall cost of the financial market turmoil to our economy more broadly. And I, I clearly understand that objective. But given that, Central bank lending can also create the expectation that similar support will be forthcoming in the event of similar circumstances, similar disruptions in the future. Such expectations can themselves be very costly to us. 
because they can distort the incentives faced by and as a result the choices made by private sector participants. These moral hazard effects are clearly detrimental to our broader public policy objectives and they place a significant burden on supervisors of financial institutions in order to constrain such risk-taking. I believe that the critical policy question of our time, and Congress seems likely to address this in the year ahead in one way or another, I believe the critical policy questions of our time is where to establish new boundaries around central bank lending and government support now that the old, old boundaries are gone. In doing so, I think the most important thing called the Prime Directive in Star Trek uh, is that the extent of regulatory and supervisory oversight should match the extent of access to central bank support and official government support. And that's in order to constrain moral hazard effectiveness. If someone's benefiting from access to the federal financial safety net, that's going to distort their incentives, and they need to be within the reach of our regulatory and supervisory system so that we can constrain that risk-taking and prevent abuse of the safety net. I take it as given, therefore, that the scope of the financial safety net ultimately must be rolled back. I don't think it's an option to let it fit as wide as it is now. Now, I'll note here that this isn't going to be easy. It won't be sufficient simply to roll back the current lending programs we have in place when the economy begins recovering, although that's necessary as well. We've set precedents during this episode, and they're going to influence how market participants expect policymakers to react during the next episode of financial market turmoil. Establishing a coherent and stable financial regulatory regime is going to require rolling back those expectations as well about how many policymakers are going to respond to the next recession or the, or the next instance of turmoil. And doing that is not going to be easy. But it's going to be impossible to do that if moral hazard concerns are always set aside in the exigencies of a crisis. And that's the tough thing about the way central bank is Assessing the effects of financial market turmoil on real economic growth is not as straightforward as it seems. One popular notion is that uh, the credit market disruptions we've seen over the last year or so impede the financial sector's ability and willingness to extend credit to households and business firms thereby creating an additional drag on spending for economy. The widely observed correlations you see in the data between economic activity and measures of bank credit extension and other measures of financial flows lend some support to this theory. But causation can go in the opposite direction as well, in my view. When overall economic activity seems poised to contract, uh, the outlook for household income and business revenue deteriorates as well, and borrowers become less creditworthy, all else constant. My reading of current conditions is that bank lending is today constrained more now by the supply of creditworthy borrowers than it is by the supply of bank capital. And this, may wait, this may well explain why some recent credit programs that are aimed at reducing credit spreads in particular financial sectors seem to have had such limited effects. If credit market stress is a symptom rather than a cause of the economic slowdown, then intervention in particular credit markets may not be a very effective demand management tool. So about the economy. The decline in residential construction activity since early 2006 has um, affected the broader economy 
uh, at large. For a time, the weakness was isolated in housing activity, um, and the rest of the economy continued to expand at a healthy pace. But in late 2007, that changed. Consumer spending began to slow. Household net worth has declined as home prices have fallen virtually nationwide. And uh, more recently, equity prices have slumped. Increasing uh, energy prices in the first half of last year took a substantial bite out of real income. Moreover, payroll employment peaked in December of 2007 and has declined by about 2.5 million jobs since then, with the rate of decline uh, accelerating over the course of the past year. As the labor market uh, has weakened, uh, growth in overall wage bill has tapered off as well. Except for the temporary bulge due to the stimulus payments that um, consumers got uh, in the spring of last year, and which in the end didn't leave much of a trace on spending, Real personal income has steadily decelerated. It's now about where it was a year ago. Given this catalog of adverse developments for the American household, it should be as no surprise that consumer spending was fairly sluggish in the first half of last year, and then in the middle of the last uh, year began falling outright, and uh, it's fallen significantly since then. When household spending slows, business investment usually isn't far behind. Business spending on equipment and software fell in each of the first three quarters of 2008. Those are the last three quarters we have data for. The near-term outlook is not very favorable either. Many firms are facing dimmer sales prospects, higher funding costs, uh, more restrictive borrowing terms. Thus, further softening in this segment of business investment appears quite likely. The other segment of business fixed investment is spending on new structures. Uh, that's been flourishing for some time now. Over the three years leading up to the third quarter of last year, real non-residential fixed investment, that's a category that includes hotels, office buildings, uh, strip malls, um, industrial plants and the like, grew at a 12 and a quarter percent annual rate, really on fire. That category seems to have slowed significantly, however, since, uh, excuse me, uh, the middle of last year. Uh, not as early as we expected it to slow. Uh, not as much or as rapidly as I expected it to slow, but it slowed nonetheless. And it seems pretty clear that non-residential construction, which is what this basically consists of, is going to decline over the course of the year. And it really only the magnitude of the slowing and um, uh, how long it's going to last remain uncertain. Last month, uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research, uh, folks who are in charge of this sort of thing, officially declared what virtually all economists knew, is that uh, we're in a recession. Uh, they dated the beginning of the recession at, at December 2007, which I mentioned earlier is the peak of employment um, for this cycle. For its time, our decline was fairly mild, in fact, milder than the last two recessions, both of which were themselves mild by historic standards. But conditions have, conditions have deteriorated much more rapidly uh, since uh, the second half of September. Since then, according to widespread anecdotal reports we hear, many households and firms um, have um, taken a wait-and-see approach. Uh, they're reducing or postponing non-essential outlays in response to what seems to be a general sense of unease and uncertainty about the meaning of all these dramatic financial market events and policy initiatives for their world and their economic well-being. Economic in indicators have obviously weakened substantially uh, since September as well. Right now, it looks like the current economic contraction is on par with uh, the recessions of 1974-75 and 1981-82. Those are the 
two largest recessions we have on record since the Depression. Looking ahead, housing market conditions are, in my view, likely to be critical to the overall outlook. The housing market is by no means healthy right now, uh, as is somewhat obvious. Inventories of unsold vacant homes are still large in many areas of the country, and as a result, average home prices are still declining at a rapid pace. Having said that, though, I find it hard to believe that new home construction has too much farther to fall, and that would imply that residential investment will sometime this year exert less of a drag on GDP growth. Consumer spending is going to be another key determinant of uh, the growth outlook because households tend to base their consumption plans on their income prospects. Uh, any improvement in consumer spending growth is likely to, to depend on a shift to a more optimistic assessment of those prospects. Once households become convinced that they can see an end to the deterioration in labor markets and the fall in equity and home prices, I think consumer spending growth will be based on uh, long-term income prospects, and I think those prospects will be improving at that point and I think consumer spending will then begin to pick up more substantially. It's just too soon, however, to say um, how rapidly and uh, when that shift is likely to occur. But all told, I think it, it seems reasonable to expect the U.S. economy to regain positive momentum sometime in 2009. And here are the reasons I'd cite for that. First, monetary policy, which I'll say a bit more about in a minute, is now quite stimulative, and real interest rates are quite low. Second, the energy and commodity price shocks that dampened economic activity uh, early last year have subsided already or are in the process of doing so. And third, as I said, uh, the decline from uh, the drags from the decline in residential investment um, seems to me likely uh, to diminish significantly over the course of this year. In fact, I'd be surprised if we don't see a bottom in housing construction sometime around 2009. Uh, but this is the third straight January. I've told you that I expect the housing market to bottom out in the middle of the next year. So you should take me with a bit of a grain of salt on that one. Um, so this downturn in real economic activity is obviously going to pose some challenges for monetary policy. And I'll talk more about it uh, in a minute. It's really essential that we don't let inflation drift from view. Since 2004, from there through the middle of 2008, Inflation trend has trended upward, both core and especially overall inflation. And it's been higher than I uh, would have liked to have seen over the last few years. Now, much of the acceleration we saw at, at the beginning of last year uh, reflected energy prices shooting up. And with oil prices and commodity prices down, obviously that pressure subsided. And overall inflation has fallen fairly dramatically in recent months. In fact, it's been negative by some measures for several months over the last half year. But there have been times in the past when inflation declined only temporarily, uh, when activity slowed or when energy prices fell, only to accelerate when those uh, factors are reversed and the recovery begins and energy prices stabilize and reach a floor as they ultimately must. So it may seem premature to worry now about how inflation is going to behave when the recession is over. We need to be sure that our, our policy uh, through this uh, recession and recovery remains consistent with the strategy that does not allow our inflation rate uh, to ratchet up over this um, business cycle. Now, as I noted before, let me talk here about monetary policy. As I noted before, it's quite accommodative right now as growth prospects deteriorated beginning in late 2007. The Federal Open Market Committee 
has brought the federal funds rate down from five and a quarter percent to near zero. Uh, now we officially have a target range for the federal funds rate between zero and 25 basis points. Now the fact that banks um, can hold idle reserves are earning no interest means that we're not going to be able to reduce the funds rate below this. Now it's common to think of monetary policy in terms of the interest rate, um, but despite that, monetary policy fundamentally is and always has been about the, the, the amount of monetary liabilities issued by your central bank. That's a quantity known as the monetary weight. So hitting an interest rate involves us varying the monetary base. If we put in too much uh, by way of our monetary liabilities, we'll drive the interest rate down. If we put in too little, we'll drive it up. Uh, because the interest rate on bank reserves, the federal funds rate, is the price, essentially, of our liabilities. So even though central banks talk in terms of changing their policy rate, it always means something about central bank money. Now, when interest rates approach zero, you often hear concerns about deflation, that is, a falling price level. Now, I don't believe deflation is a major risk rate, a sustained fall in the price level. But deflation can be dangerous, and it's um, something central banks need to pay attention to, because for any given interest rate, for any given level of any given interest rate, uh, deflation increases the real or inflation-adjusted interest rate, and thus stifles real economic growth. For a sustained deflation to emerge, people have to believe that the money supply is going to fall along with the price level. And this, that's what happened during the first three years of the Great Depression. That's when we last had a sustained deflation. The consumer price index fell by 27%, and the monetary base shrank by 28%. Central banks can prevent deflation by credibly committing to keeping the money supply from contracting. Such a commitment is a natural byproduct of a credible commitment to price stability, but for a central bank that has not yet formally adopted a numerical objective uh, for inflation, preventing deflation can prevent some additional challenges. Uh, this is why some central banks increase the quantity of their monetary liabilities dramatically when interest rates are at zero to convince the public uh, that they will keep uh, nominal interest rates near zero for some time and that they will not let the money supply contract in the future. The monetary liabilities of the Federal Reserve System have more than doubled over the last several months, from around $840 billion, the week ending September 11th of last year, to around $1.7 trillion uh, the week ending uh, September 31st. This increase in the Fed's money, uh, monetary liabilities was a consequence, a direct consequence, of the collection of credit programs that we initiated last fall. Uh, that new lending increased bank reserves. Uh, we ran out of the ability to sterilize or offset that lending by um, draining reserves through asset sales from our portfolio. Um, and as a result, uh, the cumulative amount lent has driven up uh, the monetary base and uh, increased um, the amount of monetary liabilities of the central bank. Now, luckily for us, uh, the implementation of these large credit programs coincided with a time in which that additional monetary stimulus was warranted. But monetary policy and credit programs, it's important to recognize, do two separate things. Monetary policy stabilizes the purchasing power of money over time by keeping the price level uh, relatively stable and relatively stable. And it contributes thereby 
to maximum sustainable economic growth. Fed credit policy, on the other hand, has been aimed at promoting growth, but it's more in the, a form of fiscal policy in that it uses the public sector balance sheet to alter the allocation of resources. In this instance, credit market interventions have been financed to a large degree by the issue of new monetary liabilities, but they could just as well have been financed with non-monetary liabilities, like U.S. Treasury securities, for example. Mixing up monetary and fiscal policy can be done, but you've got to be careful. It's fraught with risk. Many historical instances of monetary instability have been the result of central banks uh, being prevailed upon to use their balance sheet for fiscal ends in ways that impede their ability to keep inflation under control. And my predecessor, President Broaddus, uh, was a pioneer in calling attention to this problem. That's why in recent decades, Countries around the world have provided a measure of independence to their central banks within frameworks that provide for some accountability um, in order to explicitly insulate them from the short-run political exigencies that might diminish the credibility of those central banks' commitment to control inflation. In the United States, the cornerstone of, the cornerstone of that framework dates back to 1951, when the Treasury Fed Accord formally gave the Federal Reserve independent control of our balance sheet. Both the short-term benefits and the long-term cost of central bank credit has been and will no doubt continue to be debated for some time. But no matter how you assess the overall merits of such programs, it's important to measure, recognize that fiscal measures are distinct from monetary policy measures. While at the present time credit programs do not conflict with our monetary policy strategy, there could well come a time at which monetary stimulus needs to be withdrawn to prevent a resurgence of inflation, even if credit markets are not deemed to be fully healed. At that time, constraining inflation may require closing down credit programs or finding an alternative non-monetary financing arrangement for them. Price stability, after all, is the vital first ingredient in financial markets. That concludes my remarks. Uh, delighted to be here. Once again, we'd be happy to take your questions. Al, did I see you reach your hand? <laughs> I, he's not a plan. Uh, so thank you.